Welcome to the Next Level Brands Podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us today at the Next Level Brands Podcast. Our podcast is brought to you by Next Level Brands CPG Community, a merger of the experience of Next Level Marketing and the educational resources of Kitchen to Shelf. Next Level Brands community brings together CPG entrepreneurs at all stages of growth, providing knowledge, training, courses, and networking, not only with fellow entrepreneurs, but also key partners in the industry, including packaging, finance, and e-commerce. More details available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's, nextlevelbrands.com, what you need to know to grow. This is Steve Clear, and this week I'm welcoming Michael Schwartz to the show. Michael is the founder of Treeline, pioneering plant-based cheese brand. Michael left his career as an intellectual property lawyer when he learned about the cruelties of animal agriculture and felt compelled to create cruelty-free alternatives to dairy cheese. He began experimenting with fermenting cashews in his home kitchen. When he was confident enough with his recipe, he started knocking on the doors of small independent retailers in the Hudson Valley in New York City, asking them to carry plant-based cheeses. Nine years later, Treeline retains its activism ethos in which it was founded and has grown to have products available in more than 3,000 retailers across the country, including Amazon, Target, Whole Foods, Kroger, Wegmans, Ralph's, and many more. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks. Uh, When I heard the introduction, I um, almost didn't recognize myself. (laughs) (laughs) Things have uh, come a long way in the past few years. So uh, thanks. I I feel like I've arrived now that I'm (laughs) on your show. So, my we're, we're with all the things, the involvement in food recent years, and then kind of the pandemic sort of just stepping on the gas and putting it into overdrive. Let's reel back a little bit to starting the idea of starting Treeline and talk to us a little bit more about the driving force behind that and, and your reaction to, you know, finding out what was actually going on in industrial farming and stuff. Well, as, as you said in the introduction, uh, what prompted me to start the company was um, what I'd learned about the dairy industry. And I'd been vegetarian for a good 25 years before that, and that I didn't eat meat, but I really didn't understand what, um, was, what the production of milk and therefore cheese involved in terms of cruelty to animals. I didn't understand that all the dairy cows end up being slaughtered. Um, I suppose I should have put two and two together, but um, that really is what prompted me to start. Uh, but that's not really enough to build a business on. <laughs> you, you need, you need right. a business. And ideas and um, good intentions don't build a business. It's, it's hard work and, and not doing dumb things that, that build right. the business. And, and, and so now you had a few choices, obviously you could, uh, there are nut milks and there are other things. What led you to the cheese and to cashews, nuts as the ingredient? The main reason why I chose cashews is that they are quite easy to um, uh, turn into a paste, which you can then turn into cheese. They have a, a mild flavor and they have a good level of fat in them. So they really are the ideal nut for making dairy alternatives if you're going to make them out of nuts. Right. And, and so when you decided to do this, were you doing this to for friends and family or did you actually sit down and say, hey, I, I want to make this a business and this is what I'm going to do? Uh, I 
I thought I wanted to make it into a business, but I didn't really understand what that would involve. So I had a very vague idea that I wanted to create the product and sell it, and I wanted to see it in stores. But I, I can't say that I had any real insights into the food industry and how to go about getting distribution, how to go about getting it on shelves. Uh, it, it, was, it was really just a, a passion project. And then the, the real learning had to begin once I had this product that people seemed to like. So, And with your background as an attorney, obviously did not prepare you for dealing with basically a perishable product in the end. Yeah. Well, I suppose legal advice is perishable in that the law changes and circumstances change. But yeah, you're right. Um, the, the food industry and uh, the food retailing is, is a very unique business and it has its own rules and its own customs and its own culture. And it's, it takes a while to really get to grips with that. Being a lawyer does not prepare you for that in any way, shape or form. I, I, I think it's there are I've interviewed people who come from tech and basically from the same thing. They're going, oh, no, 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 no. I was not prepared for this. I, I, I agree with all of those things. And I'll add to it um, language. There also is. Right. I mean, like any industry, it has its own nomenclature. But even in, you know, when we talk about retailers and we talk about the, the word margin, Margin is something different to the producer than it is to the retailer. Yeah. And we can't even agree on what it means. All we know the price is going to, his price is going to go up. Um, so did you go to, did you do a cottage law in your own home or did you go out to a commercial kitchen or borrow a restaurant kitchen for a while or how'd you get started? So I started my own kitchen. I then rented some space in the back of a, vegan chocolate maker in New Paltz, New York. So you could say that's a commercial kitchen. Yeah. Uh, once I got things going uh, there and I found that people really liked the product. Um, so we were, we were making it in the back of the chocolate shop and then selling it in the chocolate shop. And then I was taking it to a market in Brooklyn, which was a, a vegan market on, on a Saturday afternoon. And I, found people were standing in line waiting for me when I got there because they heard about this product. And then I took some space in Kingston, which I'm still in now. And that, you know, then went into like a full scale factory. And I'll, I'll add that when I, when I took the space, I, I very clearly remember standing in the space and looking at, you know, several thousand square feet and going, I'm never going to need all the space. What have I got myself into? And within a few months, I was looking for more space. When I took that space, I had the same experience of going, this was a big mistake. I wish I'd never taken this additional space. Six months later, I was looking for more space. More so, space. Yeah. <laughs> One of the, the things, Michael, being a, a, a pioneer, however, is beyond just this has to taste good, right? And perform, right? Somewhat similar to what you're trying to substitute for, at least. You also have to educate buyers on the fact that people want this, right? And and why? Um, I, I love your, you know, people standing in line because that's a really good sign. Um, you know, it's it's um, you know that type of I'll call it organic demand. Okay, um, is is awesome. But did you 
how, how did you do the education part of it? Did you put together some information on you know what the industry was like and why there should be a substitute? Or was it, hey, this is really great stuff. You should just try it anyway. It was the latter because when we started, it was a matter of literally knocking on doors of small health food stores. And the buyers in those stores don't have time. They don't have the attention span. You talk to them in, like in the store next to the refrigerator. Right. And your pitch has to, is literally, if you get two minutes, you're lucky. <laughs> While the guy's busy putting product on the shelf, you know. Right. So the pitch was pretty unsophisticated. You do identify a very important part of this, and that is how do you get buyers in more um, sophisticated stores to, to take your product? And you've got to go back seven or eight years and imagine what the vegan cheese market was like then. And what it was like was it barely existed. Right. And the buyer, his job really depends on making sure that his little piece of real estate in the store is providing a return. Yep. And if he's selling, you know, whatever it is, it, call it, let's say it's uh, sliced American cheese. Yep. Okay. And that's selling. He's got the velocity in coming off the shelf there. Why would he get rid of that? Right. Particularly when the buyer himself probably has met three vegans in his life. You know, so it's it's um it's very difficult. It's a very difficult task. That's changing, and you know we're seeing retailers making a much bigger commitment to plant based, but that definitely wasn't there when I started the company. And has that has the pandemic accelerated that? Do you think, or did it hinder growth? You know, that's that's hard to answer because. Most of our cheeses are what you would call special occasion cheeses. They're cheeses that you would eat, um, at least the, the ones we're selling, we were selling when the pandemic hits, were cheeses that you'd eat when you have your friends over. Entertaining, so, right. So we did ha- find a little bit of a flattening of our growth. Uh, in the meantime, we brought out non-special occasion cheeses, uh, although obviously it's a special occasion anytime you eat our cheese, but um, it, it, we brought out just regular cream cheese, you know, chive and onion and strawberry cream cheese and plain cream cheese. Right. And that's, that's where I think the, gro- the growth is going to come. But the, the, what, we, what we found interestingly, much to our surprise, is that the one area where, where we just grew tremendously was in meal kits. Because ah, people are okay. you know, getting these meal kits to because they get sick and tired of cooking at home because they can't go out. Right. And our meal kit business just grew dramatically in the in the uh, pandemic. Yeah, and and, and it, yeah, I, I even finally well, I, I I've tried each one because I kind of have to being in the business, but I yeah. So but but during the pandemic, signed up with one again because I'm the cook in the house and and my wife takes care of other things, but it was like. I'm really having a hard time coming up with seven days a week, something yeah. different. I got I, tons of cookbooks, but that idea of driving that through the kit thing made, made a lot of, a, a lot of sense. And I understand because of the stuff I've seen in the kits where your stuff would really, would really be a good addition, you know, to, to a kit. Yeah. Um, and so in terms of, 
Um, so now as we're looking at it, we're sort of, I don't know what to call this. We're not post-pandemic. We're not really mid-pandemic. We're sort of three-quarter or whatever it is. But how do you see that now evolving? I think things are going to go back to normal. Uh, I think that um, there's just a huge pent-up demand for everything that involves getting out of the house. Right. Uh, you know, even going to the supermarkets, there's a pent-up demand to go to the supermarket. During the pandemic, we could not get in-person meetings with any buyers. Right. So it was very difficult to get new products um, um, taken by the supermarkets, the major retailers. We are not seeing that many in-person meetings still. And right. they, they've kind of evolved to, you know, if you're lucky, a Zoom meeting and sending samples to the, to the buyer. So we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll see. I, I think part, part of the buyer's problem, if, if you put yourself in the position of the buyer, is there's one buyer and there are literally thousands of food producers trying to get his attention. Yes. And I think in a way, Zoom and, and uh, Google Meets and things is a, is a gift to buyers because they can not have to have these people in their office. And I, I can't really blame them for that, even though, we all want in-person meetings. Right. You want to add that extra personality. And, yeah. and, it, and it's true, I think, the, that when they look back at the efficiency of doing it this way, unfortunately, I think there will be pressure to do, continue to do more of the stuff virtually. And um, if you look at like, so Albertsons is, is headquartered in Boise and, and you it, a, a lovely lobby out in front and a big building and so you have to go wait if you're a vendor in the front, but then the buyer has to come downstairs, get you right from the lobby, meet, greet, make sure you're signed in. You have to go past the guard and the metal detector. You have to walk the down the hall up the, to the elevator, wherever you're going. Well, that's 20 minutes by the time you get to sit down in the buyer's office. It's another 20 minutes for him or her to walk you back out since you must be accompanied, right? And it's like, okay, well, I, I just got 40 minutes there that you could have done a whole nother meeting. If yeah. I'm trying to, you know, if it, so I think that's a, that's going to be a driving force we're going to have to have to deal with. So, um, yeah, it's very frustrating because, you know, you, you hire salespeople based on their um, personalities and it's very hard for that to come across in a virtual way. And also over the years, your salespeople develop relationships and it's very hard to develop relationships with people without actually engaging with them. You know, I'm hoping that trade shows will come back so we'll be able to have some in-person contact with buyers of those. And yes, and the ones that are sort of, you know, for now, um, I just got to notice about one that's in uh, another one in Southern California for sort of ingredient suppliers and stuff. And they say, by the way, we're live. We're going, it's, you know, it's, it's, we're going live. Um, Expo East is going to be live at this point. So that really is, to me, that's kind of the litmus test. If they can pull that off and we don't have a variant issue or something, but uh, I, I, I never said I would like to get back to a trade show, but I'd like to get back to a trade show. You know, so. <laughs> That's exactly what I, I think. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, was, I was so done with the site net. Now, wait a minute, I want to go back. And, uh, and, and people who, you know, unfortunately, the people that got caught in the, the pandemic Expo West when they canceled at the last minute, I mean, that was just horrendous for so many people who had samples and everything else and they couldn't get stuff back and 
So, well, yeah, we had people out there at the time. Right. And they were about to set up the booth when they were told, that's it, it's not happening. So, yeah, we were. Uh, we were but on the other hand, I have, a, I have a client who got there and found out it was canceled. But the guy he was supposed to meet, have an appointment with, also was there. So they ended up going out to dinner together and getting a deal. So yeah. <laughs> he was fine. He goes, you know, you make, make lemonade out of lemons. And what are you going to do? Uh, um, yeah. So when, when you were doing so as in, at the beginning, were you working with, with some people or family or whatever, or were you pretty much doing this on your own? And how did you grow a team to build it? Well, okay. So I really just started out advertising on Craigslist and, and getting people in to work in the, in the factory. Uh, I, I ran the business more or less as a, an autocracy for quite a few years. <laughs> and then I realized that, that I probably wasn't the best person to run the, the business. And I decided I was going to hire a, a professional CEO. And it's, it's funny, when, I, when I, I got some really good candidates and I'd interview them, look at their resumes and then say to them, you know, if I were applying for this job and I saw my own CV, I would say, what do you think you're doing applying for this job? You have no business applying for this job. You're so unqualified and I'm running the company. So <laughs> I ended up hiring a guy um, by the name of Justin Lambeth who is a former um, PepsiCo and Nabisco person. Right. Uh, MBA, a CPG guy. And that's, that's really changed everything. Uh, you know, we, we're on a much more uh, rigorous, disciplined footing than we were when I was running the company. With that, because I, I've had the actually very – fortunate situation of having a couple of people. I have one who was on the show and, and recently had hired a friend of mine as her CEO. And I was able to get both of them on the show to talk about that. But one of the things we looked at was what was the moment or the epiphany or whatever that occurred that led you to say, uh-oh, uh, I really need to start looking for somebody with more professional background. I don't think there was a particular moment, but I looked at the business and I said to myself, you have two options. You can either grow this company, which is going to require an injection of capital and some skilled management, or you can keep doing what you're doing. Uh, if you keep doing what you're doing in the short run, you'll continue to make some money because I was making a very nice living out of the company after five or so years. But Given the competition, the growth of competition, chances are you're going to die out eventually if you don't grow. Right. So I, I said to myself, the only real option here is to grow. And if you are going to grow, then you've got to get the right people in to grow. And that, that's really how it happened. I can't say there was a moment where the light bulb lit up and I decided to hire a CEO, but that, that was the thought process behind it. Um. And obviously today you have a lot more competition than you did nine years ago. So how, how do you guys position yourself against the, the now Me Too competitors? You know, there aren't many real Me Too competitors because the, the majority of um, non-dairy cheese is pitched at a kind of a lower end of the market. 
and the most of it is made out of coconut oil and starch and that, you know that type of ingredient so the, 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 I don't see the the sort of dayas and violafs as as competition as much as complementary to what we do. Um, I think there are other competitors that are much closer to what we do, and they started more or less around the same time as I started. Uh, they've been much better capitalized and probably were much smarter about getting a professional <laughs> management than I was. Um, but I, you know, I feel I, I think competition's good generally. Um, I think it's it makes for better products. I know it makes us think a lot harder about how we're going to do things and what type of products to sell and how they taste. And you know, I think I think it's generally good for the the market to have the competition. Do you, um, in terms of product development, do you look at I guess developing it again organically from I, I have a flavor profile I'm familiar with. I know it can do this. Maybe I can add something to it or whatever. Or do you do it from a hey, here's I want to substitute something for this. And I won't use Velveeta as the example because it's really bad. But but you know what I mean. In other words, I, I'm I'm going to try to do something in a in a in a in a form or a flavor that matches something people are missing if they decide that they're going to be a vegan and, and, uh, or, or lactose intolerant, for instance? Well, that, that's a really um, complex area that would, you know, I could talk about for a long time. When I started the company, I made products that I liked and that okay. satisfied me. And the reason why I did that is that I really liked cheese and I used to travel to Europe a lot and spent a lot of time in France and Italy where I had really good cheeses. And when I decided to give up dairy, I wanted something that would satisfy me. Now, that's not the taste of the average American consumer. Right. Now, I'm with, with the um, uh, ad, arrival of, of Justin, my CEO, we're much more focused on what does the consumer want? and trying to give the consumer something that that they they have a, a need for but there's also a, a tension between simply imitating what's out there and being really innovative right because by definition imitation is not innovation right and he and i have long talks over dinner about you know how should we be imitating or should we be doing something completely new and doing something completely new is really risky. Yeah. Doing something imitating is also risky because you're up against very well-funded competitors. So it, it's a complex area. And I, I like to think that we've got a little bit of both in that, for example, we are working on um, making slices and shreds, which is very much a mainstream form of cheese. Yeah. Um, our competition is making the, their products out with coconut oil, which is high in saturated fat. Right. In fact, it's as high in saturated fat or, or higher than dairy cheese. So we decided we were going to make ours out of sunflower oil instead, which is very low in saturated fat and is much more healthy. That's a real innovation. It's a, it's a, a real step forward in terms of human health. 
and uh, you know that comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah, R R and D is <laughs> a fascinating part of the business and getting getting that together. Um, I, I think my there there is there there is you know as people are developing products out there and our, our audience of fellow entrepreneurs is you know we used to laugh about the ice cream category right that if you if you did an item ranking of the best selling products that had the best velocity whatever else basically the entire shelves would all be vanilla because that yeah. and then strawberry or chocolate and strawberry but you have variety and you know you have some duplication because of brand loyalty so i can have two things on the shelf that are basically virtually identical but one is abc and that's what people want to buy. I got to have CFD because they also have people, but I, you know, so the buyer has to, has to go through that. And then as you innovate, it's the idea of bringing that to market so that the consumer will recognize what it is, but will be intrigued and, you know, will, will want to want to try it. It's, it's not easy to do. It's like adding that you know, whenever the guy came out with Rocky Road and ice cream, I'm sure that the buyer just went, I'm, I'm sorry chunks of what and marshmallow I, I don't i don't need that i need i need another really good french vanilla you know whatever so that that yeah. that's a challenge yeah that's a challenge that's a challenge in our industry. Um, you know in the in, in the preparation for this you asked me for a funny funny story is it time for a funny story <laughs> yes absolutely let's do it <laughs> well you may have heard this but i i quote this my, my brother actually told me this one and it, it's it's um Two shoe salesmen in Europe in the 19th century decide they're going to go to Africa and they go separately and they agree that when they get back, they'll exchange stories about what their experiences were. So they both go off to Africa, they come back and they meet and the one guy says, so how was it? And the, the guy says, Africa is just terrible. No one wears shoes in Africa. And the, he said, how was it for you? And he said, it was fantastic. No one wears shoes in Africa. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so, you know, it's, that sums up the, this challenge because if you, if you on the one hand, you, you say, well, what kind of cheese should we make? Let's make cheddar and Swiss. Right, right. Okay? Because the, the data show that's the biggest seller and that's what you should make. Well, maybe that's because there's, already so much cheddar and Swiss, you know, that, that there's no room for anymore. And no one's making, I don't know, just to think of something, chive and yes, yeah. chive and uh, pepper. Everyone's too scared to bring out the chive and pepper because they don't know if it's going to sell. Everyone's, the buyers are going, well, what the hell is that? I don't have space for that. I've never seen that. And I think that that represents a big challenge. And I think that no one, no one has ever been successful in business by simply imitating and going along with everybody else in the hope that somehow you're going to make cheddar cheese that's better than the other guy's cheddar cheese. I, I just don't think that's an entrepreneurial way of doing things. Yep. I, I think it's a recipe. It's like a race to the bottom and a recipe for, for mediocrity. But on the other hand, if you go too far, it's a recipe for bankruptcy. Yeah. 
And and somewhere in between there, if it gets popular enough, you get private label and then a whole nother world opens up. Yeah. Well, sure. so, yeah, yeah. It's um, but it, it is interesting, though, Michael, in the two philosophies, and of course, this is something that you hire Justin to deal with is on one hand, you have the um, we have gaps within the market that we know exist. So if you do cheddar Swiss, whatever, and you want to have performance, uh, you have if you're trying to do slices and, and, and shredded, you want it to perform like people would expect dairy slices and, and shreds to perform. You also have, on the other hand, the, the sort of Steve Jobs, if you will, philosophy of the consumer doesn't really know what they want until you give it to them. So, right. So rather than saying, OK, I'm vegan, I'm going to replace this. Um, I, I personally have tasted a lot of plant-based stuff, sauces and cheeses, whatever. I actually prefer some of them to normal dairy stuff, which I still eat. So, you know, there's this idea of, you know, would I have tried that if I wasn't in the business? And the answer is no, I probably wouldn't, but I'm not the audience. So if you go to that audience that's looking for something to say, hey, besides just thinking about replacing whatever it was you ate for years and you miss, let's try this something new. So, and that's sort of the Steve Jobs thing of, hey, you've never thought about having, you know, an iPod with songs in your pocket, but I'm going to give it to you and you're going to, we won't be able to live without it. So it's a different Uh, different philosophy, you know? Yeah, I think, I mean, clearly the the, the different philosophies are clear. How they apply to the food industry is very unclear. Yeah. (laughs) Because people are very emotionally attached to the food they eat. And to get them oh, yeah. to, to take a step into something different, you know, it's, it's really very hard. You know, people eat turkey on Thanksgiving. Um, you know, I, it, it seems almost inconceivable to most Americans that you wouldn't eat turkey on Thanksgiving. And it may be so, the only day they eat turkey that entire year. And half of them don't even like turkey. So, you know, <laughs> but I mean, you see my point that it's, it's, a, it's a legacy industry with a lot of very powerful um, emotional element to it. Uh, tech is not that big in food yet, but tech is becoming bigger and bigger in food. The question is, do people even want tech in food? You know, do people want genetic? There's been a big push against genetically modified food, some of which is perfectly fine, yes. but some is kind of horrible, you know? I, I, so that's one of the things I don't get is I don't get how it is you want non-GMO on all the box stuff that you buy, but you're willing to eat cellular meat. It doesn't make any sense. I, I you know, either you don't want genetic modified or you're okay with it. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's kind of strange. I think the jury's still out on that whole thing. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just think it's, it's not clear where that's really going to end up. Genetically, my, I mean, I've always thought, Genetically modified has gotten a very bad rap. Um, you know, if you take genetically modified soybeans, feed millions of people who would otherwise probably starve to death if the crop hadn't been genetically modified to grow where they live. So, you know, yeah, okay. Now, maybe we shouldn't. Well, you, know, you know, there are a lot of people who don't believe in evolution, but evolution is the ultimate in genetic modification, isn't it? Yes. Well, yes, exactly. And, and, we, and as long as you do it naturally, if I want to cross this apple tree with, you know, whatever, that's fine. If I'm mating the two branches together, but if I genetically do it, you know, not, not so good. Um, I, I think one of the things that there's a lack of understanding about the fact that 
anything that's genetically modified does not does not genetically alter anything in the human body. It's just it's you know, and and I know the the story of the tuna fish gene that they use in the tomatoes to keep them red. I, I got it, but it doesn't have anything to do with you digesting it. it you're not, you know, yeah. by the way, you eat tuna too. So what's the problem? But, but there, look, there are some things that are really rather off-putting. The idea of splicing animal genes into vegetables is pretty disturbing. It's like a Frankenstein scenario. And I think people have a, a sort of a, a gut reaction to that, which is, well, why do human beings actually have to do that? Why don't we just eat natural things? Yeah. So, I mean, I see both sides of this and it's, it's, it's just not clear where it's, how it's going to play out because frankly, if we, if the population is going to keep growing and we, and we have the challenges of climate change, I don't think just, you know, uh, the people who say we'll eat grass fed beef, they, they don't really provide a real alternative because no. only a very small number of people can be fed that way. And, and, and also, you know, farm to fork and all the things that those of us who live in somewhat temperate climates can enjoy does yeah. not work in northern Alberta. I mean, right. It, it, so if we want to, it's that whole thing of preservation and, and whatever. It's, it's, it's one of those things, too, within the industry. I've been talking with some people about how um, we have this emphasis now so much more on farmers markets and fresh food and local produce and CSA boxes and everything else. But we also should be thinking about freezing and canning some of that extra stuff because we're literally burying tons and tons, hundreds of tons of fruits and vegetables, yeah. or it's going to rot in the field and they're just plowing it back under when if it was preserved in some fashion, it, it could feed people. And, yeah. you know, and, and by the but way, the other problem is a lot of these um, things that people think are the right way forward work as long as you're making a lot of money and can afford to get in your Range Rover and drive down to the farmer's market. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Most people that just doesn't work because they, they just, they can't afford it. It, it, it it's it, yeah. As, as I was at a food conference one time and there was a debate sort of opened up on stage between uh, a person who was um, a vegan a really staunch vegan and somebody who was from industry or whatever else. And there was a gentleman who's a food scientist from Kenya sitting there and he was in his white, you know, rope thing, whatever. And as these people started, it starts getting a little heated between the two of them and the moderators trying to take it down. And he looks into the microphone, he goes, Americans, a choice of proteins. <laughs> like, you know, it's, like, it's so nice. You can have this discussion. I, you know, I, yeah. these are, these are first world problems like crazy. You know, so well, I think the problem is for everybody, it's the solutions that are first world, and we've got to be very careful not to be elitist and find solutions that that the the upper privileged members of society feel good about, like grass fed beef, right, and then the rest can't possibly achieve. So it's it's a, sort of you know it's like a let them eat cake approach to right. the approach. problem. Well, there's there's also the the curve of contribution to the, the contribution you want made to society from an innovation where take the electric car, for example, that, you know, that the, the electric car to greenhouse gases is, is that initially for years and years to produce electric cars took more greenhouse gases than to produce combustion. Now, after so many miles, the electric car 
you know, goes past that and starts earning its keep. But initially, if you don't make that commitment to that, you're never going to reach the innovation that you need to, to do that. Yeah. And that requires usually government support and societal support. And we don't we don't always have that in, you know, yeah. from our government. Well, this is a subject for another podcast. Yes, we could we could go, we could do a whole show on it, Michael. Anyway, yeah, it's, a, it's a big um, subject. Talk to me a little bit on Treeline. Talk to me a little bit about, you talked about um, shreds and slices and stuff, but what do you see bigger picture for plant-based foods down the road here at Waze? Oh, that's a, that's a, a, a broad question. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that we've come into our own and this is the era of plant-based foods. I think we, we're heading in that direction. I don't think the whole world is going to be vegan anytime soon. But I think that um, the, the, the so-called plant-based market is going to keep growing for a long time. Um, something I find really interesting is I meet a lot of people in their 40s and 50s, whether they are consultants or people interviewing for jobs or whatever. And so many of them say, oh, my daughter's vegan or my son is vegan. And I think that the, the younger generation of people, you know, 12 years old to 25 years old are seeing the world in a very different way. Yes. And that's the consumer of the future. And I think that's just growing in, in leaps and bounds. Um, I, I think that the danger, you didn't really ask me this question, but I think the danger is a lot of these substitutes for um, dairy and meat are not really healthy. And by that, I mean, if you look at a lot of the plant-based cheeses, they are so heavy in saturated fat um, right. that, that yeah. they, they just aren't offering a good alternative to, from a health point of view. They may offer a good alternative from an animal rights point of view or an um, environmental point of view, but for human health, they really don't. And I, I feel that you've got, to, you've got to do it all. You've got to try and do it all. Um, I think that these new um, attempts to grow meat in labs and grow uh, dairy molecules in labs are inevitable, but they still don't address that human health issue. Right, where, yeah. and, and that's where I think the, the plant-based market is it maybe go, like it's, it's looking for a, an identity in a way of, are we going to do this just to be plant-based or are we going to do it to really solve all the problems that our food system has created for us? Right. Uh, no, agreed. And, 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 and if, if the mission, so the mission behind it, to accomplish that mission, we also need to get a larger percentage of the population who are not going to turn into vegans overnight, but they're going to do meatless Mondays, or they're going to add two or three dishes a week that are, you know, do not have any animal proteins in them or dairy or whatever the, you know, it is, but it's to get also to get those people to start doing that and lessening that demand, increasing the demand for plant-based products. And, and that, and that's of course a huge, huge number, which I think will help drive, you know, innovation and, 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 you know, and other support in the category. Yeah, it's definitely incremental. And I think that the, um, the likes of impossible foods and, Beyond Meat are doing a really fantastic job because they are showing consumers that they can eat something that is as satisfying 
as a beef burger right. without, without any animal protein in it. And once people start doing that, it's not just going to be meatless Mondays. It'll, be, it'll extend further into the week until right. one day they're going to go, gee, I haven't eaten meat for a month. You yeah, know? And, I, and I'm fine. And I feel yeah. better, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll work. Awesome. Well, Michael, um, a bit, I, I won't say accidental entrepreneur, because I think you have entrepreneur spirit all over you, but you did get into this not exactly in the normal way someone necessarily builds a food business. Uh, but would you share with us, we have our little segment called Words to Grow By, uh, mm-hmm. share with us um, one word or one phrase or some key belief that you'd like to share with fellow entrepreneurs out there who are on the journey. Sure. I, I, this is, I'm going to say something that some people might kind of take exception to is in that it's a little harsh, but my, my words are get over yourself. And what I mean by that is the whole world is not waiting for your product. You may have made something in your kitchen or your test kitchen, which you feel really good about. Your, <laughs> your mother loves it. Your mother thinks you're a genius. Your wife thinks you're a genius, but that's not a business. Right. And you've got to understand the world is not waiting for you. It's a hard slog. Yes. And you've got to really put in the, I don't, I don't wear um, leather, but you've got to put in the shoe leather. <laughs> yeah, to, and do it. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Great, great advice, Michael. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Well, hey, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today and sharing the Treeline story. Uh, where can we find more information on Treeline, by the way, online? It's easy, treelinecheese.com. Uh, that's our website. That's an e-commerce site. And also uh, our products are available on Amazon, plus in Whole Foods, Kroger, Targets. Across uh, the country. All over the place, yeah. Great. Well, again, thank you so much. We'll have you back on the show again, okay? Yeah, thanks. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem. And thanks, by the way, to all the rest of you out there for joining us today on the Next Level Brands podcast, part of the Next Level Brands CPG community. If you have a growing firm in food, beverage, health, and wellness, you should be a part of the Next Level Brands community. Education, resources, workshops, founder coaching, and networking. More information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's, nextlevelbrands.com, what you need to know to grow. This is Steve Clear, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at Next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.